Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Henry Petrosky will join us to discuss practical engineering. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, while science does a remarkable job of explaining the natural world, engineering is able to implement these scientific concepts into practical solutions for everyday problems. For everything from climate change to preventing natural disasters, engineering may be able to provide the technical solutions. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Henry Petrosky. Professor Petrosky is a professor of civil engineering and history at Duke University, author of numerous professional and popular works on the subjects, including The Pencil and To Engineer as Human. His latest work, The Essential Engineer, explores this topic for a general audience. Professor Petrosky, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, you're welcome. It's really a very fascinating book, The Essential Engineer. For those people out there, if you can explain the ways in which science and engineering differ. Well, you mentioned that science explains. Uh, science discovers, explains, tries to understand. Engineering wants to make new things. Engineering wants to take the science where it's available and come up with new inventions, new ways of controlling the environment, the, uh, the climate, and, and so forth. Uh, sometimes there isn't enough science to to actually know how to proceed. So engineers very often have to go back and do their own science. They have to figure out ways around it. This has historically been the case uh, when the Wright brothers wanted to develop the first machine to uh, fly under power, what we know as the airplane. They couldn't find uh, scientific literature that uh, told them what they thought they needed to know. So they started doing their own experiments, basically became scientists and engineers by necessity. Trying to take the very basic concepts of science and put it into practical use. Right. We, we know that the laws of nature can't be violated, so they tell us what we can't do in a, in a way. And, you know, if we understand the laws sufficiently, then we can, we can exploit them and figure out ways to uh, get them to combine phenomena and effects to our advantage. But it, it's pretty tricky stuff sometimes, especially when we're dealing with very large, complex systems. Does it uh, usually wind up being the case that the scientific concepts in, in the process of engineering found to actually not be correct? Well, that's right. Uh, actually, there, there are some interesting historical examples there also. Back in the 19th century, wanted to develop steamships. Engineers wanted to develop steamships to go across the ocean. If you had steamships, then you could have a very reliable transit time, and you could finally have scheduled uh, shipping before sailing ships, uh, you couldn't do that because you were at the mercy of the winds and the weather. The scientists, however, believed that in order to go across the ocean under steam alone, you would have to have a ship that was so big in order to carry enough coal that it would bog down. And the scientists basically said it was impossible because the more coal you would need, the larger the ship would have to be, and these things would just outpace each other. But engineers didn't uh, 
believe that uh, that was necessarily the case, and they designed ships and built ships and eventually launched ships that, in fact, did make it across the ocean under their own under their own steam. Hmm. In that case, revealed something interesting about the limits of nature, right? That, that, that's right. The steam engine was developed centuries before the uh, steamships, and there was really no science to explain exactly how steam engines worked. It was the development of the steam engine, the existence of the steam engine, that, that to a science that we call thermodynamics, the science of heat in motion. And examples of that galore about new things being developed by engineers that then lead to new sciences. Use the term rocket science a lot, for example, but there is no rocket science until there are rockets. There is, there is no computer science before there are computers. Energy is, by and large, an engineering achievement, energy sources, I, I should say. I mean, we have the natural energy sources, the sun and the wind, that we're trying to harness now especially. But doing that is harder than it, than it sounds. It's easy to say, let's have wind power and solar power. But working out the, the engineering, the details, and doing it, and a key component of an engineering solution is doing it for the right price. Almost anything can be done if you can throw enough money at it. But generally speaking, you want a solution that has uh, the right price, that, that's a reasonable price. We want our uh, new energy sources to be competitive price-wise with existing energy sources, for example. So is this one of the main considerations then for engineers, is doing it practically in terms of money? Yes, it, it is. And when, the, when the railroads were being developed in the 19th century, there was a lot of talk about how you should lay out a railroad, which route it should take, and so forth and so on. And a famous the definition of engineering came out of all those efforts, and it, it went something like this, that an engineer can do for $1 what any fool can do for $2. In other words, you can accomplish anything if you spend enough money. But the idea of engineering is to do it, not necessarily at a minimum, but at a reasonable price. So the case then in engineering that uh, one tries to strive for elegant solutions to problems? Oh, yes. Elegant solutions are always, you know, welcome. Elegant solutions have to expend, say, the least amount of energy, and you can do it on a very economical scale. These are always sought after, but they are sometimes like the holy grail. What do you think, then, of, of the current state of engineering in terms of education, uh, engineering in the U.S., and how engineering is being applied, supported by the U.S. government? Well, engineering education is alive and well. I teach engineering at Duke University. There, there's a lot of talk about oh, what's sometimes called the attrition of engineering students, that not all engineering students stay in engineering, and this is a concern to educators and to industry that relies upon engineers to, to work. Sometimes engineering students get discouraged in the early years of their study because they are taking a lot of mathematics and a lot of science uh, necessary so that students do understand what the constraints are on what they're going to try to do. So the students get, get impatient and they say, well, where's the real engineering? So there's an increasing effort to try to introduce engineering at a very, very early stage, meaning the freshman level. And by real engineering, what most students seem to know viscerally is that it has to do with design. It has to do with making things. It has to do with coming up with new ways, new schemes, new devices, very much akin to invention and entrepreneurship, for, for, for that matter. So, so this is beginning to uh, attract a lot more, more students. There, after World War II, engineering education went in the direction of science very much because uh, science made such a splash during the Second World War, and the scientists really had the ear of Washington after the war. And it's a lot easier to teach scientific engineering than it is to teach design engineering, let's say. There was a movement away from what some of us like 
call real engineering, as opposed to just talking about the theory, doing things as well. That's being regained, and, and I think that students are becoming more satisfied. There has been a problem in recent years with engineering students because they have a reputation when they graduate for being problem solvers, and engineering is, if nothing else, problem solving that a lot of engineers were going into non-engineering fields, such as uh, finance, let's say, on, on Wall Street. And this was really a, a loss for engineering because some of the brightest students were not staying in the field. That also seems to be turning around in large part because of the financial problems that the economy is experiencing. Well, what, what do you think are the most pressing problems then for uh, engineers to solve in the future? Most pressing have to do with the environment, with the concerns over, over climate questions about energy. We know that there are issues relating to energy independence, for example. How can we become energy independent might involve new ways of, of looking at how we not only use energy, but how we conserve it, how we make trade-off of one kind of energy for another. The National Academy of Engineering issued a group of, oh, about a dozen, as I recall, grand challenges for engineering in the 21st century, and they included things like this. They also included things having to do with medicine. There's a lot of engineering that goes into medicine and hospitalization and medical help. If you go and have an operation, you go into an operating room, you just are amazed at how many devices there are that are really engineered devices. Some of the techniques are engineered techniques. So understanding how the body works and understanding in particular how the brain works is one of the goals of the National Academy's grand challenges to try to get a, a handle on that because that would help really solve a lot of the health problems that have been intractable in the past. What do you think are the prospects for engineering to solve some of these problems? Well, if we have a century, they're probably pretty good. A century is a long time. If you look back, the computer, for example, was really only about a half century old. Nuclear power is about a half century old. So from in, in the period of a half century, we have revolutionary changes in the kinds of devices we have, the kinds of tools we have. So I'd say the chances are, are pretty good. It's a matter of focusing on the problems, and that's what the National Academy has tried to do. It has tried to focus attention on these problems, and rather than just scattershooting all, all over the place, focusing on what appear to be more pressing problems. How do you think the U.S. compares with other countries in terms of our engineering prowess? I think it compares quite well. I, I travel a fair amount. When I go abroad, I get a clear sense that the culture in which I am has a great respect for engineering, American engineering and American engineers. Um, and that's why they invite people from America over, because they think they can learn something from them. They, they, they think that they can get a sense of how to do American engineering. It, it works both ways, actually. We learn a lot from you know, our overseas colleagues, too. It's not just a one-way one -way street. I was recently in Korea, and I was visiting a new bridge, and the engineer explained to me that, well, the team that constructed that bridge actually came over to the United States to Charleston, South Carolina, to observe another bridge being built because it was very similar. And now people from San Francisco, where they're building the new Bay Bridge, have gone over to Korea because they've built a bridge that's similar to the one that they're building in San Francisco. So... It, it's a mutual relationship. How much do you think the general public can learn about engineering, and how can they help contribute to the uh, engineering enterprise? Well, I think the general public can learn a lot by thinking the way students think, that not to think it's all science and math. Uh, science and math is necessary to understand engineering in a way that you can actually go and do it. But you can understand the principles behind engineering. You can understand the objectives and the goals. 
without having an awful lot of scientific or mathematical background. When you look at it, if, if the public can look at engineering as problem solving, as developing devices and tools and systems that, that work and that work efficiently and economically, I think that the public can, can, can get a good grasp of what engineering is all about. I think a lot of people actually have an innate sense of what engineering is because we all, in our daily lives, uh, solve little problems. We adapt some new tool for a, a different purpose. That's what, what engineering is, is about on just a larger scale. We are running slightly out of time. Uh, if, if you might have some uh, final words regarding the field of engineering. Well, I, I think engineering is something that should get a little more respect than it traditionally has. There's a tendency to put science on a higher pedestal than engineering. There's a tendency to think sometimes that engineering just follows directly from science. It's just a matter of applying scientific principles. But it's really not quite as simple as that. Engineering and science, in my opinion, should be on an equal footing. They should partner to approach and solve some of these large problems that we have, global-type uh, problems. The uh, fact of the matter is that when we do research and development, we often think of research as science and then development as engineering. Well, in the real world, when you do research and development, you really trade back and forth. You might do a little research, you do a little scientific background and make some engineering advances, but then the engineers get stymied because they need to know something more. Then they start doing what is the equivalent of science or go back to the scientists and say, hey, we need to know more about this. And it's really a partnership. And, and that's how the greatest progress will be, will be made. Building up the solutions to the problems. Yes, exactly. Well, the new book is called The Essential Engineer. And Professor Trotsky, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. And you were just listening to Professor Henry Petrosky discussing practical engineering. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. title play of the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Engineering the Future or a Neo-Luddite. 
So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are engineering the future or just a Neo-Luddite and maybe a little reason why. Professor Petrosky, you ready to play the game? I hope I am. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, person number one, engineering the future or a Neo-Luddite, it's the golfer Tiger Woods. Oh, <laughs> well, let me think. He certainly uh, uses a lot of tools. Is he engineering the future or Neo-Luddite? I guess with, with, with him, I'd have to say that he, he's not sure which he is right now himself. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure I can guess either. It depends, I think, on how he comes out of this mess he's currently in. And I guess he can go either way. Okay. Well, number two, it's the Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Well, I think Steve Jobs certainly thinks uh, he's engineering the future. And I think a lot of people agree with him. Some of the products that come out of his company are just outstanding. They really wow people. I will say, however, that Apple products tend to have a little bit of an idiosyncrasy. I was listening to students make presentations yesterday, and they have to come up to the front of the room, hook up their computers so they can project their presentation on the screen. And the Apple machines they, they use seem to have a mind of their own. <laughs> One student will, will plug in his computer, and it, it might work just perfectly fine. Another student will plug in her, her Apple, and we just wait for it to decide whether it's going to cooperate with us or, or not. It, it may well be that neither I nor the students are, are fully versed in how these machines are supposed to work because they do evolve so, so quickly. But I, I would generally have to say that Jobs is, a, uh, is engineering the future. Just to his particular vision, it seems. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, number three, engineering the future, or Neil Luddite, it's Jerry Springer. Oh, <laughs> well... Uh, here I thought you were going to be throwing scientists and engineers at me. <laughs> it's a mix. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I've watched Jerry Springer for probably five or ten years, so I, all I can say is that my impression was that he liked to get people on stage to confront each other. I, I don't think he was engineering the future because uh, I, didn't, I didn't see a lot of reconciliation the times that I caught the show. <laughs> so I'd have to call him a neo-Luddite. All right. <laughs> Okay, number four, it's the real estate mogul Donald Trump. Oh, that's another uh, tough one, I would say. Trump is a fascinating guy. He, he certainly thinks he's engineering the future with his real estate productions. Uh, some of them are, are quite striking, I, I must say. I guess I'd have to say he's engineering the future, although I think he's really hit a, like a lot of other developers, hit a brick wall right now with the economic situation around the world. Indeed, indeed. Finally, number five, engineering the future or a neo-Luddite, it's the president of the United States, Barack oh. Obama. <laughs> well, uh, that's another tough one. When Obama first, you know, after he was sworn in, he talked a lot about science, and he talked about how he and his administration were going to restore science to its rightful place, and that was good. But then the more he talked about science, the more I began to worry, because he talked about science as producing, you know, innovations as uh, if it were uh, science was populated with inventors and innovators. And he very, very seldom, Obama very, very seldom has used the word engineering. And yet engineering and engineers are what are going to bring innovation to the country, not science or scientists. And it's not clear to me whether Obama and his administration are just trying to use science as a shorthand to include engineering, or whether there's not a full appreciation of the distinction between science and engineering. 
So I think I would have to hedge on uh, on that one. I think his words suggest that he means well. It's not clear whether the actions are consistent with the words. For example, uh, recently the Obama administration has guaranteed loans for building new nuclear power plants. And a lot of people have, have praises, a lot of engineers, because engineers generally like nuclear power. They think it's a clean form of energy. And, and actually, some environmentalists are coming around to agreeing with that, that it, it's emission-free, uh, really. But there is the problem of nuclear waste, and everybody recognized that, recognizes that, including engineers. And the United States, for decades now, literally decades, has had a plan to bury the waste in a deep geological setting out in Nevada. But the politics, Harry Reid in Nevada and, and the Obama administration, has shut down that option, which was called Yucca Mountain. So on the one hand, Obama is saying that we're going to support nuclear power with guaranteed loans to the tune of billions, billions, billions of dollars. But at the same time, we're going to close this option of what we're going to do with the waste. So it's a mixed signal to, to engineers, at least. So I'll, I'll have to uh, say I'm on the fence about that one. Uh, well, Professor Petrosky, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game with the uh, Rocketron 5000. And, of course, talking about your book, uh, The Essential Engineer. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.